I don't know that I've ever gotten chills watching somebody cook, but it was this moment where you're just like, my God, what, you know, what an amazing feat that he's just done. Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am your host, Lindsay Christians, food editor here at the Cap Times. Sean Farr is the chef and owner of Mint Mark on Atwood Avenue. He's also a classically trained chef who spent about a week recently in Paris watching a friend of his compete in the Bocuse d'Or. The Bocuse d'Or is one of the most elite culinary competitions in the world. And while the United States did not win this year, Sean has some really awesome stories about what this competition was like, what he was able to see, and what that might mean for what we'll see on the menu at Midmark. Give a listen. Welcome, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So first of all, can you tell people who you are, where you work? My name is Sean Farr. I'm the chef owner of Mint Mark in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, over there on Winnebago Street. And how long has that been open? 61 weeks. <laughs> like It's like a baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we count it by fish fries, so it's easy to keep count. So you were recently in Paris? I was. I, uh, my wife and I and some Friends of ours from Chicago went to cheer on our friend Matthew Kirkley, who was representing the United States in the Bocuse Dior. So if people have never heard of the Bocuse Dior, what is it? Uh, the Bocuse Dior is essentially the World Cup of cooking. So there's 24 countries, and it's one chef and their commis. It's basically five and a half hours of extreme cooking that you've been training for for an entire year. That seems like a lot of work. Yeah. It was crazy, I'm sure. How do they choose who's going to represent the United States? Um, from my knowledge, uh, Matt was actually asked to compete, but you do have to qualify. So I know he went up against other chefs from the U.S. And I think all those various chefs are chosen um, by some of the higher-ups. And um, they all competed in Vegas to uh, win a spot to continue on. And uh, I think Matt just he won all of those, and he was the guy. Thomas Keller is associated with this, yes? Thomas Keller is one of the mentors or has started the mentor program, kind of a play on the words of Bocuse Dior, but mentor. He, Gavin Kaysen from Spoon and Stable and uh, Chef Daniel Boulud um, are all running this mentor program where they kind of oversee the uh, care of Team USA, uh, provide places to practice, and essentially solicit funds for the team. Gavin Kaysen, um, that's Spoon and Stable in Minneapolis, yes. right? I wonder, how do you know Matt? How did you get to know him? Uh, Matt and I um, had a mutual friend in Chicago, Ryan LaRoche, who um, I cooked with at True, and uh, we cooked together at Nomi. And Matt was one of his best friends. They went to culinary school together uh, and worked at the Four Seasons and actually worked at um, one of the Bocuse Dior's back in the day. Um, so uh, Matt is probably the most talented individual I know uh, in terms of cooking and creativity. This was kind of the next step for him. He moved out to San Francisco, got his third Michelin star when he was running Qua, and then shortly after uh, left there to pursue the Bocuse Dior, which had been a dream of his. And basically in the last five years that I've known Matt, he's accomplished every one of his tasks. So it's a pretty, pretty incredible human being. 
It sounds like he has probably a pretty intense life. He does. Yeah. So I was looking at some of the photos on the Instagram, and it's incredibly detailed and delicate food. What are sort of the expectations when you go to Bohusor? Like, what are you going to be doing for those five and a half hours? So there's two themes, theme on a plate and theme on a platter. And to my knowledge, um, they all knew that uh, rack of veal would be one of the ingredients for the theme on a platter. And then to my knowledge, they found out the theme on a plate around December. So like I said, they competed, what was it, two weeks ago about? So they had a a few months to figure that one out. Um, The theme on plate was a chartreuse, which to boil it down is uh, kind of a cold seafood cake. If you want to get Mussolini's in there or other farce, um, that's kind of how you do it. It's, so it's like a cold seafood sausage sort of? It can be. It should have more vegetables. Um, if you think back to like old school Jello recipes where you've got like the <laughs> crown roast of hot dogs and, you know, shrimp studded in there, heavily laced with mayonnaise, I think that would be a good way to get a, a mental image of what they could look like uh, were not in the careful hands of uh, Matt. So. It does sound kind of gross. I don't know that there's too much of a market for it, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you won't see it on Mint Mark's menu anytime soon. And this is taking place in France. Is, is it all about then classical French cooking yes. and technique? Okay. So it's, it's it boils down to the best of the best in classical French technique and somehow trying to encompass a little bit of where you're from. You know, you, you have to try and represent who you are and, and who we are as a country and a, and a culinary scene, while at the same time encompassing all of the tradition and technique. You know, you've got a eight-pound rack of veal that you have to stuff with some kind of farce and get the bones clean and get it and, and figure out the timing and roasting and resting so that it would be perfect by the time it gets to judges. Meanwhile, there's 11 other chefs presenting within 10 minutes of each other. The whole thing, even to the end of the competition, you're judged on how you clean your kitchen and how fast you break it down. The thing I can never get with this kind of competition is is heat timing. Like, so how do you make sure it's still warm? Like, I was looking at the the photo of the theme on a platter, and there's so much stuff on there. And some of it obviously can probably be room temperature or whatever, but the veal shouldn't be, right? Right. I mean, how do you make sure it's still? So they practice over and over. And I actually didn't ask Matt how many times they repeated the routine for the theme on a platter or the roasted veal. Their coach was standing in front of the kitchen, essentially, and he's got his laptop up, and there's a, a prep list that would give any chef nightmares uh, taped to the to one of the coolers, and they know exactly at, you know, at this hour, you need to start cutting out the puzzle pieces to go around the chartreuse, and at this hour, you need to be Frenching bones for the rack, and at this hour, the dough needs to be laminated again for the tiny croissants that they put on their platter. So, I mean, there's there's nothing left to chance. It's just making sure you're hitting all your marks. And it's really similar to any uh, pro athlete training to what they have to do to do their best. You just use the word routine. And I think about, you know, an ice skating routine or a mm-hmm. gymnastics routine. And there are things that you can judge and say, okay, she included the triple Lutz and landed on this foot. And like that technique is there. But then there's also the aesthetic elements that are more subjective. Right. And that seems to me to be the place where it could be really different country to country, potentially. I think it can. And it is subjective, too, which is is tough because to see somebody perform at this level and you know that they're hitting all of the technical marks that they need to. But at the end of the day, it's still food. You know, somebody is maybe not going to like it. You hope for the best. And 
I mean, I know they trained so hard. He and his uh, his Comey, uh, Mimi, they just you know spent the last year just giving it 110. percent How do you pull the influences like America? I, I try to think like if I think about what is American food. Like if I'm going to do, if if you're representing your country among all these other countries, like how do you represent a country as diverse and wide ranging as this one? That's tough, and I think in our current political climate. We don't want to have that USA kind of mentality going. <laughs> the nationalism, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and not that there's anything wrong with it in a certain sense of pride, but um, we're not viewed very well right now in, in a lot of places. And, you know, so I think it just boiled down to just serious technique, regardless if it was French or American. I just, I know that Matt just, you know, just went 100% impossible technique that other people couldn't replicate. Did you get to see the competition? Did you get to go in and see it? I did. It was about five and a half hours of sitting, and I was, I don't know, about 50 rows up. So you couldn't see much. They did have a uh, a giant TV screen going on, and once in a while they'd have a cameraman focus on that. But they had 12 kitchens to cover. Now, this is the issue that I had with the whole thing is that I feel like it wasn't very well produced. For this competition that's held in such high esteem in our industry and is really like the pinnacle of how a chef can perform, to have it so poorly produced on the stage is, I I likened it to having like two producers from uh, like Telemundo emceeing it. Uh, it. It was incredibly sexist. <laughs> And there was a lot of tension between the hosts, and it, it lost some of the focus on what was happening behind them. So that was kind of neat. It was five and a half hours of watching Matt Cook, and it was kind of, um, I don't want to say boring, but it wasn't, like, intense for a really long time. And then when it came down to the final seconds when Platter started hitting and uh, Team USA put out the chartreuse, it was amazing. I couldn't have imagined a better culinary mic drop because uh, everybody's minds were just blown by the way this thing looked, and the judges couldn't figure out how they were going to cut it, how it was going to come apart without shattering. And Matt had figured out a way to, like, each piece kind of unlocked where nothing was disturbed, and it just, I mean, it presented beautifully. So I don't know that I've ever gotten chills watching somebody cook or do something, but it was this moment where you're just like, my God, what an amazing feat that he's just done. Fifteen minutes later, the platter's being presented. And meanwhile, there's more chartreuse from the other countries and more platters going around. And at that point, the judges had already eaten 48. By the end of it, they had sampled 48 plates. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Sometimes when we watch cooking competitions on television, because those are fun to do, uh, especially the American ones, like I'm not talking about the British Bake Off, (laughs) my husband will often make comments of like, why do they set the times so tight. Can't you just give them more time and let them see what they can do? And I think about it like the competition just sort of intensifies a time limit that is maybe already there in a day-to-day kind of restaurant kitchen. You can't take all day to make a quiche if you want to like run a restaurant. So there's always going to be a time element in cooking. There is. Um, I mean, time is your your biggest enemy in the industry in a larger sense, even and like how you choose to spend the early years of your career to service. You know, I have, you know, I try and get everything out in at least nine to 15 minutes at Mitmark. Nothing nothing should take longer than that um, until we get slammed. But time is so important to what we do. And then when you put it in these competitions and and even the TV ones, which um, I recently just did one, 
it was crazy. You know, we had 30 minutes to gather all the ingredients, come up with your idea, and then get back and cook and present. And um, some of it was hard. Some of it you you kick into that, uh, you know, intense line cook feeling and, and you really push through and you're like, oh, wow, I've got some time to spare. But uh, other ones, it's, it's, it's nuts. And I think, I think that's important to hold people two times and regardless of what you're doing, if it's TV or in normal service, it's just an important factor in life. You said you just did one. Yep. Where is that? Can you, can you say where it is? Um, I did Guy's Grocery Games a little oh, while ago. nice. Yep, which will air soon. I'm not sure when it airs, but I can't really speak to much of it. But Was that weird? It was incredible. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, but it'll air soon. People can watch it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I I wonder when you go to the, something like the Pagoo store that does feel like looking at the photos, everybody's wearing these huge toques, and it looks very old school. And like the – like the the technique on display is incredibly delicate, but it's also again like classically French driven at a time when more culinary schools are starting to incorporate uh, other cuisines that are not French, right? I wonder, like, where do you see the role of this competition sort of in twenty nineteen? I think it's incredibly important when I hear about what classes students are getting in culinary school now. Um, for instance, cuisine of or southwestern cuisine, or you know where I hear they've taken away egg cookery and they just discuss it. If you're not heavily rooted in some sort of foundation and tradition in this industry, I I don't think you have a right to spin on things after that. You know, um, this competition represents a lot of what a lot of chefs hold dear is respect to. Uh, some of the kitchens gone by and some of the attitude gone by and, you know, the tall toques and the crisp white aprons and just everything working as immaculate as possible. And there's no way these people could compete and do what they do if they didn't know how to make a proper meringue or if they didn't know how to emulsify a farce or how to roast a piece of meat without the use of sous vide or anything like that. Um, so, again, it's everything has to be based in some sort of foundation and tradition. And the further we move away from that, I think it's going to be harder for cooks to continue to produce great food. You can be as creative as you want, I guess, and, and get as weird as you want, but you need to have, have to come from somewhere. Do you need to understand the rules you're breaking? Like, absolutely. And, I, and aside from getting to see Matt compete in the Bocuse Dior, this trip to France was so important to me – because I got to go and and check out a cuisine that I've only read about and only been talked to about by chef uh, French chefs. To be able to go to bistros and brasseries in Lyon and Paris, like the, the food that I'm really, really interested in, it was so great to be able to check and see if I was holding true to tradition and not veering from what it should be. But on another end of it, I think one of the the greatest takeaways is when I came home and I had my uh, weekly menu meeting with all of my cooks and we were talking about the trip. And I think the thing that I noticed the most is we stay true to tradition and we don't get crazy with what we're doing and everything is rooted in foundation, but we definitely push the envelope on seasoning, which may sound lame to somebody, but our use of salt and acid and heat when needed really moves that cuisine forward. Um, I found that a lot of it wasn't, I don't want to say under-seasoned, but maybe 
um, because a lot of that food is super rich and, uh, and heavy. Um, I ate so much foie. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I could have used a little like Malden sea salt or I could have used a little lemon juice and something like that. So I was happy to see that my cooks are executing on a high level and in a respectful manner, but at the same time moving it forward where it's appealing to new generations. Having gone to these you know, brasseries and bistros, do you have inspiration going forward for the menu? Like, do you, Are you going to be doing some different things? Anybody that knows me knows that I'm pretty passionate about pâtés and terrines. So I, I ate three or four a day. Um, oh my god! There was <laughs> a, about day six. I looked at my wife and I was like, "Man, I feel a little weird." And she was like, "Well, maybe you should stop eating raw beef at every meal." And I, mean, I, was every like, meal. I thought back to it. I was like, "Holy crap! I've eaten beef tartare at the shadiest of bistros <laughs> uh, with a raw egg on each one, of course, too." So. Yeah, definitely, you know, much like a high-performance athlete, I really pushed my body to the limits. Went in, in Paris. Fact, went in Paris. Went pretty hard. But uh, I could see myself trying to open up something small that encompassed the things that I really loved. Like when I – some of the restaurants I ate at were 200 years old, and they had these tiny little bars. And Chad won't want this at all, but uh, – really small bar with just a couple of bottles of wine by it, you know, and, so, and some water and like a cooler with a few aperitifs on b- below, but covered in zinc on the top. And then some of the dining rooms had the same amount of seats as Mintmark. And just, I was thinking like, man, it'd be so cool to serve this kind of fare once in a while. And I, I don't know that it would work. I, I, I don't know what I would have to do or call it for it to uh, be appealing in the Midwest. But I just I feel like some of this food is so perfect for what we eat over here, like pike canals and a little lobster cream. Uh, it's a traditional dish from Lyon where they uh, puree pike or northern uh, with cream and eggs. And they make like a little football shape and they bake it in a creamy lobster sauce with a bunch of cognac. I think anybody would get down on that. That sounds delicious. Yeah. You know, and just. And heavy. Yeah. Oh, man. So heavy. <laughs> so heavy. But, um, you know, leeks vinaigrette, which is one of my favorite dishes to do. I had it at Brasserie George in Lyon, this 600 monsters restaurant, 600 seats, uh, an army of servers. You know, but I had leeks vinaigrette with pickled herring. And, I mean, there's such a cool European presence in Madison um, that I think, you know, most families have had pickled herring at some gathering. But to incorporate it in this really cool, typical French dish, like I just... I thought that was neat. So, yeah, you'll see you'll, – you'll definitely see a few things. Like right now I have Serville, Newit, and please forgive my French, but it means silk worker's brain. And I had this at a restaurant called All Lyonnaise. And what it means – what it is is fromage blanc seasoned with vinegar and chives and shallot and tarragon. And it kind of curdles a little bit. Uh, so I, I've tried replicating that, and the fromage blanc that's available in France versus the fromage blanc that is basically cream cheese in America with all of the uh, the processing. Um, I've gotten all the flavors the same, but it, aesthetically it's not the same. But it was a beautiful dish, and I wanted to bring that back right away. I think that my server described it to me as like a fondue almost. Fond, don't say that again. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I mean it was – I said, what is that? And she said a silk worker's – brain or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, help. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe also it's not the time of year for fromage blanc, potentially. Potentially. But right? it, you have maybe? to get an unpasteurized fromage blanc, I found out. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So Otherwise, it won't curdle, probably. It won't curdle. Right. When you think about a French bistro, the aesthetic to me seems very close to Wisconsin Tavern, mm-hmm. like somewhere that's that's darker and cozy. Fries are in both places. 100%. <laughs> and cuts of meat. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a perfect description. Yeah. I feel like if we could get away from people worrying about what the name is mm. of what they're eating um, and not have to change the name so people would eat it. I mean, that's I'm kind of a stickler for that. I think it would work. I think people would have fun. I mean, everybody loves beer. Everybody loves sausages. I mean, sausage and lentils. That's not a bad dish for anybody. You know, it was one of the best things I ate over there. When you see the work that Matt had to do this past year and the intense level of practice and training, does a part of you want to do something like that? You know, I don't know that I would want to, or even if I could, do something at his level. But I've been at various events and and, and other things in this style, and I always think about, man, what if I would have done that, or maybe I'd like to do that. And yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that I would like to attempt and push myself at, but I know this particular uh, competition, it, it takes a whole family to do it. And his wife, Lauren, um, is one of the strongest women I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and she's, you know, she kept the whole thing going for him, you know, and it was, it's awesome. She So it takes support from everybody that you're connected with in order to do that. I don't know that I would want to do that to my family, especially if we keep, you know, opening restaurants. I feel like I get an amazing amount of support from my wife and family in that, right? So maybe uh, the next restaurant will be my next Bocuse Dior. <laughs> that sounds maybe a little bit more doable. Maybe better for Madison, too. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. We get editing and tech support from our CT podcast guy, Eric Lawrenson. The Corner Table drops every other week, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Follow us at Corner Table Podcast on Facebook, and find more food and drink news every day at captimes.com. Look for our recent review of Dumpling House and a profile of Ziggy's Barbecue in Oregon. I am your host, Cap Times Food Editor Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is chicken liver pate in honor of the best of rustic French cooking. Cheers! Cheers!